how are you doing? All right, so I am talking about a theory of functional programming, which is a book that I'm working on, and this is actually me working on it right now. I am going to talk about the topic, and hopefully the transcript will turn into my book. Okay, so I talked about a lot of things last time. That was last Friday. And I know that the last thing I talked about was composition, and I don't think I got very far into that. So I'll talk about it. Um, We talked about the three domains and how you can be in each domain and stay in the domain. And I think that's kind of important to prove that they do have an integrity to them, that there's something about them that once you're in that domain, you can just kind of travel around in it without um, changing domains. Um, Now, uh, one question is what happens when you compose across domains? So that's really interesting. Uh, If you have two pieces of data and you put them together, what do you get? You get a new piece of data. It's still data. If you take two uh, calculations and you put them together, you get a new calculation. And finally, you take two actions, you put them together, so you do one after the other, or you can do them both in parallel, then that is a new action. So you've stayed in the domain. But what if you take a piece of data and you compose it with a calculation? You don't get data, you get a calculation, right? So you've kind of, the calculation will um, infect the data. And so now you have calculation. Similarly, if you take an action and a calculation, you put them together, you get a new action, right? So if you have a if you have an action which is read a file in to a string, and then you have a calculation that is parse the string into a piece of data, right? Into a data structure. The the thing that you get when you put them together, so you read the string in from the file and then parse it. That is a that whole thing is a calculation. I mean, is a is an action, right? Similarly, if you had something that was, um, uh, if you needed to like take a data structure, serialize it to a string, and then write that to disk, if you took that thing as a whole as a unit, that's actually an action. So we see that things they they things um. It, infect downwards. I'm saying that actions are contagious downwards, meaning if you have actions as the big whole, and then you have inside of that you have calculations, and inside of that you have data. We talked about this hierarchy, right, where um, we know that we can represent, well, we know that actions are universal. And we know that there are some things within that sphere of action which we can 
consider to be timeless. Right? So, yes, the plus operation does change the memory of our computer, right? It, it modifies every operation in there, including addition, modifies a register. That's where you store the answer. And it reads from memory, so that memory could change at any point. So it does really, in, like, in, the, in a general sense, every operation depends on when it is run and how many times it is run. But using our language or some other discipline, we can say, well, that, that memory of the register is kind of special. We're not going to store anything important in there so that at any point we can overwrite it. And you make all these rules, which we've developed um, as, as programmers. These are just good practices that we've developed. Um, and so if you have enough rules, you can say, well, I've made a function that does plus, that uses the plus operator that the, um, or the plus um, instruction that my machine understands. And it uses a stack discipline, and it does all this stuff. So you, like, you never are overwriting any memory and it's using the arguments that are on the stack and nothing else is writing them. So you have this illusion that you're setting up in functional programming that it is safe that these things are timeless. No matter when I run this function, I'm going to get the same answer. Right? It depends on this entire stack of disciplines that our compilers enforce, that we enforce as, as, as programmers, or that our data structures enforce this stack, the millions of little decisions that we've we put in there in order to enforce this illusion. Anyway, the idea is that calculations are a subset of actions that are timeless. And then in that, we know that calculations, because they're basically mathematical functions, like in a lambda calculus, that these can, functions can represent any data. So you can represent numbers using um, a, the church notation, and you can do operations on these numbers. So you, you can represent everything using uh, functions, also known as lambdas, if you're, if you're into that. And so that means that data is a subset of calculations. Okay. So the reason things infect down, so actions infect down, is because, so actions infect calculations is because you're just pulling it up by, by composing these two things, you're getting stuff up. And so just naturally, through entropy, just programming away and changing stuff without real effort, if you don't put effort toward this, through entropy, things will just naturally move up. So your data will become calculations, will become actions, and so then your whole, your whole uh, application is written out of actions. And through discipline and effort, energy expenditure, we can push stuff down, back down, 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 down. So this is one of those... Um, 
sort of imperatives of functional programming is push stuff down as far as you can the stack because it's going to come back up naturally. You have to put in the effort to, to do, make it go down. Okay, so here's another thing. When you have these compositions like a, an action plus a, plus a calculation equals an action, you have the reverse operation too, which is the refactoring. So instead of composing these two things together, as you would when you're writing a function out, you know, do this, then do that, then do that, you can pull each of those steps out as a separate component. And so you can actually separate out the calculation from the action, right? But here's, here's the nice thing. You, so you can, you can separate it. If, if you have an action, you might be able to separate out a calculation from that action. And so now more of your code is in calculation as opposed to action. Similarly, you could separate out data from an action, and more of your code is in data than in action than before. And then you can separate out data from a calculation. Now more of your stuff is in data than in calculations, so you're, you're making progress. And you can also, you know, obviously take two datas and separate them. That's fine, too. You're not going to gain very much in that. Um, but notice something very important, which is that if you have data, there's no way to pull an action out. There's no way to pull a calculation out. That data is at the bottom of this three-tiered stack. There's no way to get that stuff out. Right? So that's an important thing. If, you, if you're looking at a calculation, you're not going to be able to pull out an action. It's good to know. right? It's, it's good to keep that in mind, that, that um, it's not possible to get that. Okay. So I want to talk again about um, these three domains. So I'll, I'm going to go into each of them and just talk about them. So first, let's talk about data. Data has several properties. The most important one is that it's inert. This means that it does nothing. It is also self-identical, which is another way of saying it is what it is. It just is. Okay, we already defined it. It's facts about an event that you've recorded. Okay, so these are records. These are things you will want to keep. Right, we spend so much energy in the real world making sure that our records last a long time. Right, if you go into a doctor's office, they will have a huge filing cabinet full of old records that is actually required by law that they keep. Maybe now they can be all electronic. I'm not up to date on the laws. But the point is, they're spending a lot of time keeping those records around. And it's a shame that when we've moved to, um, to computers, we default to stuff that can change because we're basically writing all over those old records, throwing them out. Every time we change them, it's like, ah, oh, we don't need that anymore. It would be like if you went to the doctor, you got, you got sick, you went to the doctor, 
They said, you have the flu, here's some medicine, come see me in a week. Come back in a week, you say, doctor, I'm feeling better. And they say, great. And they rip up that paper like you never got sick. They just throw it away. That's not what they do. They put a new paper in that says, okay, new visit. Yes, now they're better. So they have the one that said they're sick. They said, okay, now you take the medicine, you're better. Put that in there too. Put in the folder, file it away. We'll see you later. Next time you come, we'll have that. That is what we want to do in functional programming is we make some data, we don't change it. We can always make new data. Now back, oh, I mean, we have a lot of RAM now. I don't wanna, I don't wanna like name a date when this started happening, but we have a lot of RAM now and a lot of hard drive space and a lot of cloud storage space. Like we, we can store way more than we actually can even conceive of um, and for a business you know if you're writing business software it's probably just a very negligible cost per customer um, back in the day what day I don't know what just we had less right it's always we're, it's getting cheaper and cheaper so there must have been a time when we had less and so it was kind of important to be able to reuse that space but nowadays it doesn't make sense it, it just doesn't make sense to throw it away for no good reason, right? You might have a reason and you need to throw it away, but um, for, to throw it away just because you, um, just for the cost reason, it doesn't make sense. Okay, so another thing about data. Data is serializable because it's inert, you can represent it in a way in bytes on a disk and read it in later. You can send it over the wire. This is a, a very important property of it. Machine code is often not something you can send over. Like a function is very hard to send over the wire. It's hard to store it and read it back in and use it later. It's, it's just not something that we have as a you know an industry focused on being able to do because well and I think it is just a generally hard problem that function uh, probably calls other functions and so you need those functions too and it's it's a problem that we have not solved yet um, but we have definitely solved the the um, in many times over and we haven't solved it like definitively, but many times over we've come up with serializable data formats. It's just something we can do very easily. Something that's cross-platform, that's understood across. It's not a problem right now. Uh, we've solved it. You can use JSON, you can use XML, you can use flat text files, whatever. It's data, it's serializable. Um, now, the, the next thing is it requires interpretation. So what do I mean by this? Um, this is actually one of its limitations, is that, you know, if you have a function, you can kind of do science on it, you know, and like figure out what does this function do, you can pass it some arguments, you, you know, you might be able to figure it out. Um, but 
data, like the number five, what does it mean? You need to know the context. You need to know what it's all about. And so it's something that requires a meaning to be imposed on it. Now, the, the cool thing about that is because it, it's almost like neutral to meaning. Right? So that means you can interpret it in two different ways. Uh, what's, what's an example of this? Um, so, okay, a good example. We have records uh, of, like, let's say, Sumeria, ancient Sumer, where they recorded the accounting of uh, the trade of cattle, right? Someone paid taxes in head of cattle, and they counted them, and they made a record, and we still have that record. We found it dug it up so when it was originally put like that it's probably done for accounting so they could keep track of the years are we getting more taxes every year you know what um, what parts of the country are um, paying more taxes and what paying less you know these kinds of questions are easily answered by having all these records but we're not using it for that are we we're just asking well what was their economy like as anthropologists asking what was their economy like how did they collect taxes what so we're interpreting the same data in an entirely new way um, uh, another example maybe a more modern example if you store logs of web requests so you just log every web request to a file that web request that came in you inter like your server interprets it in one way, like, oh, it's a request for this file, let me serve that file. Oh, it's a request for this, let me serve that, right? But then later, you're doing analysis, you're doing some analytics, you want to know how many visitors did we have to each page. Ooh, that's a different analysis of the same data, right? So you're, you're imposing a different meaning on it. So this is, this is an important aspect of data. Okay, so I, do, I mentioned Sumer, and I think this is an important point that I didn't uh, get into enough. This idea of data as an inert, serializable, meaning you can make a record of it, like you can store it on a disk, and it requires interpretation, this idea goes back to the beginning of history. People have been writing down records for a long time and they have developed techniques of, of, what, of how they should be stored, um, what kind of stuff needs to be recorded. Because, you know, someone might have written down the number five, the number six, the number seven, and, and someone's like, you know, a hundred years later, what does this mean? Was this like how much, how many pieces of corn they ate. Like, I don't know what this even means. Uh, so they've learned, ah, let's write, let's write it out a little more complete so that someone can understand it later. So we've learned over time to develop, uh, to make our data more self-describing, um, to, to maybe make it more redundant, 
by having two copies of everything. All that stuff are techniques that, we, that have been passed down since this earliest time. And um, I think that in the computerization and in certain uh, practices that we do now in software, we've neglected that history. And functional programming is, is, one of the things it's doing is it's resurrecting that, at least in industry, it is resurrecting all these practices that record keeping is about keeping a memory of an event, so a fact about an event, for as long as possible, as long as, it's, as you can foresee it being needed. Okay, so another thing that we've done in, in computer science in general is develop data structures that can store data with certain operations, and those operations have well-understood complexities, meaning their access patterns have, uh, are, have certain speeds associated with them. Um, not absolute speeds, but relative speeds. And the, it's relative to the size of the container. So um, one example is the tree data structure has a logarithmic access to everything inside. The linked list has linear access. We've, we've built these data structures that have um, useful and coherent access patterns to them. So uh, a, a hash map has constant time lookup given the key. And that's something that we can rely on. A linked list has linear time lookup given the index, the, the integer that you jumped into, right? So all of these things we, we have known complexities for this really helps us deal with data. This helps us um, make better use of data, store it better, access it better. And this, I believe, is, is talked about more in the functional programming community. That data and its patterns of, of access and storage is an important part of the story of data. Okay, now here's one more cool thing about data. Data is also a universal, though it requires interpretation, like I said before. Because you can take a string of bytes, or you can store a computer program as a string of bytes. You can store a computer program as a file of buffer of characters that gets sent to the compiler. So all of this is data. It's data. Everything is represented in data in our computers. So you can represent calculations as data, and you can represent actions as data, and definitely you can represent data as data. Um, but you can also represent as another as a pattern um, 
Okay, wait, I want to, before I go on, because these two are kind of related. Representing a program as data is a thing that we do very often in functional programming. Very often. It's very common to see an interpreter written right in the language for some data. Now, typically we think of interpreter, you have a string of text that's going to get parsed and stuff. But very often in a functional language, you will have a representation of a calculation or an action written right out in the literal data structures that the language gives you, which is really cool. Right. That's we're, we're writing programs that contain programs that run programs that have an effect that you know. So this is this is where it starts to get very circular. Okay. This is it. We're on a universal Turing machine. We can write a machine that runs another program that is also Turing complete, which runs another machine that's Turing complete, etc. And in functional program, you see this a lot. It's possible in other paradigms, but this is something that's very commonly done in functional programming. All right. Um, the other things, so, so two other patterns besides this interpreter pattern that have to do with data, two other patterns that have to do with data are configuration as data. So we see this very often. We'll have a data file, a file on the disk. Maybe it's in XML. Maybe it's in JSON. Maybe it's key value, you know, like an any file. And it just configures your software. Okay, so a lot of the pieces of data that you would normally hard code in there are now in this file. It's a very common pattern. But you keep all the calculations, all the actions out of there. You just put the data. Um, and then databases. So the idea of a database is a place to store your data safely and securely and um, forever, basically. And what you see in functional programming is more and more the emergence of um, either append-only databases where you never delete old records you only add new records. Um, just like in a doctor's office. Or databases that are logging. So they are, I mean, they're essentially the same pattern, except you're writing the actions to take. You write actions to a log. And you can always replay the log and figure out the current state. Now, the the reason I differentiate them conceptually is because these the logging ones tend to only give you the most current state you know you can run it up to a certain time but they only keep these the current ones in memory that is the most common access but you could always run it to a certain point of time anyway it's a it's a very minor distinction all right, I'm running up on 30 minutes, which was my goal for this. So I'm just going to keep talking about data instead of moving on. Um, okay, another thing about data is it, it gives you an audit trail. So if you have this database that 
is append only. Often in an audit, so a financial audit or a security audit or even like a bug audit, you want to know what was the state of the system on this day, right? This time when this bug happened. Or what transactions did you did this system know about? What financial transactions did this system know about at this point in time? And a traditional database, meaning one that um, updates values in place, if it's not designed specifically to do this, uh, it won't it won't it won't work. You won't be able to ask what was the system like. I mean, I've written so many databases where if the user changes their password or if the user updates some information about themselves I just change what they had before right in that column on their in their row and we've forgotten everybody else's I mean what we've forgotten what they had before and that's that's no good now we can't ask this question anymore. And the reason this is important is these kinds of audit trails are often overlooked in the requirements gathering. Do you know what I mean? It's like uh, it's it's kind of like an implicit assumption that that the uh, requirements gatherers don't don't write down that hey at any point I'm going to come and ask you what the system knew yesterday that opposed to what it knows today um, so this is something that uh, functional programmers are thinking about and working on uh, I talked about how data is transferable uh, meaning you could send it over the wire to another computer it could read it in and that's really just part of it being inert and part of us having standard data formats that things can be read in regardless of the programming language. Um, storable forever, I talked about that. Multiple interpretations, I talked about that. Um, so here, uh, I don't want to talk too much about the problems with other paradigms. But one of the problems that functional programming addresses is that data being inert but requiring interpretation, well, object-oriented programming is trying to address this by attaching the runnable code to the object. So it knows how to interpret itself this object, meaning the data and the code together. You can send it a message and it knows how to go into the data and answer the question that you're asking it, right? Which is, which is a, a, you know, it's very valuable to be able to do that. It's a great goal. Um, but 
I, I personally believe that it is something of a pipe dream. That it is. Let me let me put it a, a better way. That with the technology that we have available, and the history of data gathering that we've got as a civilization, storing inert data as is without trying to attach code that, that we have to then run, storing it as is is our best bet right now. That it is a fine research topic to figure out a way of attaching code that will be able to interpret the data later. But we are not there yet. And so as an industrial practice, I, I cannot recommend it. And as research, I, I actually think it's a pretty cool topic it's to like do better than data. Because you could have... Uh, you could have the data be self-interpreting. The problems, the practical problems that we run against are that if you wrap the, the data in methods, uh, you know, in the object-oriented speak, you have a method. Um, if you wrap it up, you then lose all sorts of cool properties like being able to join it. So you have a collection of them, of these pieces of data. Each one is an object. How do you join, you know, using a relational calculus or something similar, how do you join it together? Right? This is a very useful operation, um, and I don't think that there's a good answer. And a lot of the patterns in object-oriented programming are trying to work around this kind of problem. And in functional programming, what we do is we, we say, well, we know the properties of our data structures. Just put it into, store it as data. It's just data. Put it into a data structure that allows a join, and you're done. We don't need to have you know, some kind of protocol of methods that and then some algorithm for for running those methods like it it just um, is it's an extra problem that we don't need now like I said it's a wonderful research problem I think you it's the kind of thing where you like look out okay in a hundred years maybe we'll have solved it and so how did we get there and you step backwards and you say okay so this is the next thing I need to do that's that's cool right that's awesome um, but, but as a practical industry programmer, commercial software that we're writing, trying to make reliable systems, we're just not there yet. It's my opinion. Okay, I'm done. My name is Eric Normand. I'm writing a book called The Theory of Functional Programming. You have heard me talking all about data, mostly. I talked about composition, talked about data. And this, hopefully, will make it into the book. Thank you for joining me. Please subscribe 
like it, do whatever, mash all the buttons, because I want people to discover this far and wide. We need a definition of functional programming. All right, thank you very much. See you later.